Starting in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of the covenant and partition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are set in order on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. Let's drop down to verse 10. You shall anoint the altar of uh, the burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar, and it shall be most holy. Look at verse 12. Uh, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle meeting and wash them with water. Verse 13, you shall put the holy garments on, on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. You shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as the priest for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did all that the Lord, according to all that the Lord had commanded him to do so. Verse 18, so Moses raised up the tabernacle. Verse 20, he took the testimony, he took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles to the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded him. Verse 22, and he set the bread in order. Verse 25, and he lit the lamps. Verse 27, and he burned sweet incense. Uh, Verse 29, uh, latter part of the verse, and he offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 32, whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, Verse 33, and he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then, this is where it gets really good in verse 34. It's all good, but this is where it gets really good. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till that day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, its fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Father, we pray that you would reveal, that we would understand in the depths of our heart as only the Holy Spirit can do, Uh, what you were speaking to us, Lord, that we too would have the glory of the Lord fill us. And Lord, we would follow wherever you go in all of our journeys. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When he was 48 years of age, Johann Sebastian Bach acquired a copy of Martin Luther's three-volume translation of the Bible. He poured over it as if it was long-lost treasure. Near 1 Chronicles 25, which is a listing of the Davidic musicians, he wrote this, This chapter is the true foundation of all God-pleasing music. At 2 Chronicles 5.13, which speaks of the temple musicians praising God, he noted, At a reverent performance of music, God is always at hand with his gracious presence. As one scholar put it, Bach, the musician, was indeed a Christian who lived with the Bible. Besides being the Baroque era's greatest organist and composer, and one of the most productive geniuses in the history of Western music, Bach was also a theologian who just happened to work with a keyboard. Johann Sebastian Bach received his first musical instruction from his father, Johann Ambrosius, who was a town musician. But by the age of 10, Bach was orphaned as both his parents had died. He went on uh, to live and to study with his elder brother, Johann Christoph, an organist in Ordoff. Early in his friction-filled life, Johann determined he would write music, music for the glory of God, and this he did. At age 17, Bach became the organist at the church. Soon after, 
he was given charge of the entire music ministry at 17. During his ministry in Weimar, Germany, he wrote a new cantata every month. Every month. And during one three-year period, he conducted, wrote, or he wrote, conducted, and orchestrated, and then performed with his choir and the orchestra a new cantata every week. Today, a composer who writes one cantata a year is considered highly esteemed. He wrote one every week for a three-year period. Yet for all of his musical talent and accomplishments, he was largely unappreciated in his lifetime. Eighty years after his death, his music was largely unknown and ignored by the public. However, two men you might have heard of, Beethoven and Mozart, admired his work. And in 1829, another German composer by the name of Mendelssohn arranged a performance of The Passion of St. Matthew that finally brought wide acclaim and praise to Bach. No one, including Bach himself, had any idea the mark he would leave. His legacy lives on some 300 years later, and you can now hear his music all around the globe in every language. Music was never just music to Bach. Nearly three-fourths of his 1,000 compositions were written for use in worship. Between his musical genius, his devotion to Christ, and the effect of his music, he has come to be known in many circles as the fifth evangelist after the four Gospels. And his handwritten notes still testify to this day of his Lord and his Master. At the beginning of every authentic Bach manuscript, one will find the letters J period, J period. This stands for Jesus uh, Java, which means Jesus help me. At the end of every original manuscript, you'll find the letters S period, D period, G period. This stands for Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of of God. Like Johann Sebastian Bach, the nation of Israel, Moses, the man of God, and the ministry and the beauty of the tabernacle were raised or being raised not with the praise and appreciation of the nations, were they? Not with the praise and appreciation of people all over the world, but actually it took place in an obscure, remote desert, where there was no one there but them. Yet more than, think about it, yet more than 3,500 years later, we can still see and worship the glory of God and the glorious work he did among 12 tribes that went from slavery to worshiping God and God alone. Isn't that amazing? When it glorifies God, it stands the test of time, doesn't it? When what we do is done to give God glory, it will stand the test of time. When God raises us up to give Him glory, you may not get it in your lifetime. You may die penniless or, or with very little, as Bach did, and no one really appreciate all that you did. Many of the great things done in history, many of the great men and women in history were never appreciated in their lifetime. Read Hebrews chapter 11. But when it's of God, by God, through God, and for God, it'll bring glory to God, not only for now, but for all eternity. Many Americans have no idea Bach was a born-again believer. Do you think your college professors are telling students this today? Of course not. They have no idea whatsoever. But, you know, the things that God does, he is going to continue to give it that ripple and after effect that will teach us years to come. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I still look at what God did here in this desert, and I have a mental picture of it all. And God wants to do the same in you and I, what he did in the nation and people of Israel. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Raised for Glory. Raised for Glory. And we'll look at three things uh, briefly here this morning. The man, the ministry, and the meeting place. The man, the ministry, and the meeting place. 
Now, just a couple of quick things by way of background as we come to the end of this book and, and what takes place here in this 40th chapter. You'll notice that at the beginning of chapter 40, it says, then, Moses, uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses on the first day of the first month. What this indicates for us is um, the children of Israel had actually left Egypt um, exactly when, when the tabernacle was ready to be raised. Uh, it's one year after they had left Egypt. Boy, God did a lot in a year, didn't he? I mean, this is the time that they've left Egypt. Uh, they have uh, received the Ten Commandments. Uh, they nearly were wiped out by the Lord for choosing idolatry just shortly after uh, leaving Egypt. Uh, rather than uh, their hearts set on the glory of God, they uh, really rather quickly reverted back to the glory of this world, the false glory of this world, and idolatry. But God had uh, dealt with that, corrected, judged, and uh, had brought them back to him. And then, as you know, shortly after that, Moses receives the final commandments, and then the people are given the instructions, and then they give with a mighty, mighty response to the Lord of the, the, just a willing heart to give their time and their talent and their treasure back to the Lord. But when we look at this, we understand this is one year later, and I think it's important for us to know that uh, God wants to in our lives, do something every year that will amaze us. Wouldn't you agree? We're coming up on a new year soon. It'll be 2014. God's done a lot in my life in 2013. I hope he's done a lot in your life when I look back, and I think it's good to memorialize and look back, what has the Lord done? What has he taught me? What has he done through me? What is he showing me uh, going forward? And the children of Israel had learned an awful lot about themselves, but also about the holiness of the God in which they serve. So we have a year later here, but what a glorious time to commemorate that time that at that one-year mark, they are now raising. They had no idea when they, left the, uh, when they left Egypt, they didn't know what a tabernacle was. They didn't know they'd be building one. And if they did know what one was, they had no idea what it would look like. And of course, they knew none of these things. God just told them that they would go and worship and serve him, but they did not know what God would do. And you and I, we have commands that God has given us to do. We're told to go into all the world, but we don't know exactly what God will do, do we? We don't know the beauty of something until we look back on it. And a lot of times, you can be fooled like the people in Box Day to think that what is actually amazing isn't amazing. And actually, you'll actually think that things that are not amazing, like the things in this world, are amazing. And no one will remember those things. But the things that God does in our life will stand as a, just a seminal testimony to the world around us. Let's look um, first at the man. I think you know who I'm speaking of. Moses uh, is one of the central figures in all of the scriptures. And knowing that the scriptures are more important than any other book that has ever been written, he's one of the most central figures in all of human history. Why? Because really, even the United States our laws are based on the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. Even the law that we... I mean, most people seem to understand, man, I don't want to be murdered. Most people seem to think, I don't want my house robbed. Most people are, are really happy that other people aren't so envious and jealous of them, right, that they spread lies. These are just some of the commandments, right? But... They think a lot less about the first ones, the ones that relate to God, huh? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, there's a lot of people that want, they do want the ones for them, but the ones that pertain to God, it's a lot less thought about. But God gave Moses these commands, and Moses, of course, is mentioned all throughout the Scriptures. Here in the 13th chapter, he's mentioned 13 times just in the 40th chapter. Here in the 40th chapter, he's mentioned 13 times alone just in this 40th chapter. He's mentioned hundreds of times in the Scripture. Now, like Bach, who I spoke of at the beginning, he wasn't really appreciated by everyone, even in his own lifetime. Uh, very few of the Egyptians, you know, actually, there was actually a lot of Egyptians that appreciated him, but many more that did not. 
Most did not. Uh, he certainly wasn't appreciated by all of his own people. At one time, uh, he, it, with his own people, the children of Israel, he would later uh, pray a prayer that said, Lord, if I found mercy in your sight, please take my life. That's how underappreciated he was, even among his own people. But even though he wasn't appreciated by the whole world, most of the world didn't know who Moses was. Uh, there in the land of Egypt, they certainly knew who he was. And some of the nations around Israel, absolutely, uh, when they went to the promised land, many of the nations around uh, there knew who he was as well. But uh, not everyone did. And today, though, you can go anywhere in the world and the name Moses is well known, even by people that are not religious. They've heard the name. They don't know what it means, but they've heard the name. Yeah, I, I, I have heard that guy. We don't know. Now think about Pharaoh. We don't know exactly which Pharaoh Moses went to. Pharaoh was a title like Caesar, right? It's a title. We don't know. We have no idea for certain which Pharaoh because the Pharaohs just kind of faded into history, but not Moses. Moses still is known. His legacy remains. He was raised up and preserved by God for such a time as this, such a time as then. But if we go back in his lifetime, he was raised up by the Lord, handpicked even from a baby for such a time as this. What was that time? Well, his people had been in bondage. They had been in slavery for not 100 years, not 50 years, 400 years. And God says, this little baby right here, put in a basket, is the man that I'm going to raise up, and he is going to be the one to set my people free. It's ultimately, we know it's God, but God uses men, doesn't he? He uses you and I. He uses us in this world. Moses was saved from death in the Nile River. He went on to reject the riches and the pleasure and the power and the preferred status of a prince of Egypt to be the shepherd of people. And before that, he would be the shepherd of sheep, where he got his training. That's, that, was, uh, that was his real training. He had all the training in the world as an Egyptian prince, but he would get his training as for the body of Christ, or the, uh, the children of Israel. He would receive that, uh, really, out in the wilderness all by himself, just him and the Lord, and as you know, called from that burning bush. He would uh, receive the law. And to, even to this day, it's still called the law of who? Moses. Jesus. Do you know Jesus referred to it as the law of Moses? Even though Jesus was the lawgiver. Jesus was the lawgiver. The government would be put upon his own shoulders. Jesus is the one who gives the law. Everything Jesus speaks became law. Whether people recognize it or not, all of his words are law. They govern the universe. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Ten Commandments are also called the testimony. Jesus was and is the law, the lawgiver, the testimony. But even Jesus referred to the law as the law of Moses. He gave Moses a special recognition. It says in John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father, there is one who accuses you, Moses in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. They're like, what? I've read the whole Tanakh, and I have never seen Jesus of Nazareth written by Moses. That's what they would say. But Jesus went on. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus knew that there was many that would read the law of Moses, but they hadn't received the law of Moses. And Jesus said, this man Moses that I raised up, I had him write about me, but you didn't see it. Jesus would use the law that was given to Moses to bring conviction of sin and the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he did right there. In John chapter 5, he used the very law of Moses. So the law that God gave Moses would be useful for all time. You and I still use the law of Moses when we witness to somebody. When we can ask them a simple question. Have you ever sinned? Well, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, some people answer that. Then you can ask them one of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The law of Moses has just been invoked in bringing knowledge of sin and bringing people to the Savior. Because the, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The law of Moses would be used for all time. This man that God uh, rose up. There would be the song of Moses. You know, in Revelation 15, 3, it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. The song of Moses, do you realize that when we get to heaven for all eternity, one of the songs we will be singing is the song of Moses. I'm telling you, God has a love for Moses. Because the song, it says, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The old covenant, the new covenant. The two will never be part. They will always be together. Two sides of the same coin. The old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant pointed to Jesus. The new covenant, the revelation of Jesus. But God had raised this man to point forward to the coming Messiah. The scriptures say he would be that Jesus, you know, the scriptures say that Jesus would be a prophet like unto Moses. This is what it says in Acts 3.22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. Moses says there will come a day when God will raise up a prophet like myself. What is he saying there? Well, he would be greater than Moses, but his ministry would be very similar to Moses. Think, the, think about the, Moses, the ministry of Moses versus the ministry of Jesus. Anointed, both. Teaching, both. Warning, both. Prophecy, both. Miracles, both. Deliverance, both. God will raise up a prophet like me, but <laughs> I love how Moses says, him you'll actually hear. Him you'll actually listen to. But many wouldn't listen to Jesus either, would they? Most would not. Eventually, Moses is right, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ. Do you know that everyone will someday hear Jesus and believe every word he says? They won't bow before Moses. They will be accused by the law of Moses. You notice what Jesus said. The law will accuse you. God will open the books. What are the books? One of the books that will be open is the law of Moses. God will judge the mankind by the law or the Ten Commandments. Then they will look to Jesus and say, are they covered by your blood? No. Then you'll bow. And Moses says, there will come a day that everyone will hear this prophet, even though you may not listen to me. You know, both Moses and Jesus, they have other things in common as well. They both escaped the command of evil kings to kill the baby boys, didn't they? Both would spend their childhood in Egypt. Both would be called out of Egypt. Both would be delivered from bondage, one from slavery and the other from sin. Both would be the most humble men on the face of the earth while they were on the earth. It says of Moses in Numbers 12, 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. What a testimony that is. How many leaders do you know who are humble? That, ain't, that is not the hallmark of American leaders. Arrogance, pride. But not Moses. He was the most humble man. Not one of the most humble men. He was the most humble. Humble man on the face of the earth while he was alive. And certainly he would have spanned many other generations as well. But his humility would pale to Jesus' humility. Because Jesus was not only the most humble man in his lifetime, but the most humble man of all time. The God-man, it says in Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The prophet 
like Moses would be greater than Moses, greater in humility, greater in anointing, greater in power, greater in miracles, greater in every facet of the ministry of Moses, and and Jesus would take the law and fulfill it up to its full point and reveal even parts of the law that Moses could never reveal or didn't even understand. Both would be rejected by their brethren, wouldn't they? But returning a second time many years later would lead the entire family to safety. Sound familiar? Jesus was rejected the first time. But he's coming back a second time and he's going to take his family with him. Isn't that great? The tribe of God. The tribes of God. The nations of God. The tongues and nations of God. Jesus will come back a second time and take us with him just like Moses came back the second time many years later and took the children of Israel. By the way, if one of you wants to name your children Moses, um, you can't really go wrong with that. That's a great way to go. But you can't rename them if they're already named. You know, you're going to have to wait for, you'll have to wait for a new one, but it's a great, it's a great name, underused in our day, I would say. There was a time when people did actually, you go back when the name Moses wasn't that uncommon uh, because it was a name of such great honor. You know, J.C. Ryle says this, he says, zeal is a burning desire to please God, to do His will and to advance His glory. Check, listen to that again, to advance His glory in the world in every way possible. A zealous man is preeminently a man of one thing. He is more than earnest, hearty, uncompromising, wholehearted and fervent in spirit. He sees only one thing, cares only about one thing, lives for one thing, swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or dies, has health or sickness, whether he is rich or poor, pleases people or gives offense, whether he is thought wise or foolish, whether he gets the blame or the praise, whether he receives honor or is given shame, he burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Moses had that zeal in every inch of his life that he would reflect the glory and holiness of God. And we see a literal picture of that. When he comes down off the mountain, remember what his face? It glowed. He reflected the glory of God. And why? Not because Moses was more special than you and I, but because he was more yielded and available. Yes, he was handpicked, but you were handpicked. Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. Now you had to willingly say yes to the Lord, where sovereign grace and free will go hand in hand on parallel tracks, but at the same time, the usefulness of us in the hand of the Master is based on our yieldedness and our obedience. And will we do? Moses struggled just like you and I when he was first called, but, 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 but. wrong guy, I don't speak real well, I'm pretty good with sheep now after 80 years. People, not so much. Last time I went to them, they didn't like me. God says, they're still not going to like you, but you're going to lead them anyway. Many would come to like him. Joshua liked him a lot, didn't he? Caleb liked him. Aaron liked him. Her, and then the list gets a lot shorter, right? But he was used. But that's what J.C. Ryle is saying, saying no matter how you're received, you don't care because whether you're like Johann Sebastian Bach and the world at your time says, not that, Im- not that impressive, one cantata a week, big deal, who can't do that, right? And everybody does that. Who doesn't, who doesn't write an entire orchestra cantata weekly, Right? Who doesn't part the Red Sea? I mean, this is, I mean, really, is this that big a deal? Who doesn't go up on the mountain and not eat for 40 days and 40 nights twice? Moses, we're not impressed. Give us a lot of money and we'll be impressed. But you asked us to give our money. That's not impressive. You asked for a big offering, Moses. We were hoping you would just bless us and give us all these things. See, the man that God calls, Jesus, his ministry was the same way. He brought people to what God's will was, not what their will was. The man God will use, the woman God will use, will first themselves be yielded to the will of God, but they will instruct others to yield to the will of God. 
And God took this humble man. If you don't have humility, you don't have much. God took this humble man and emptied of himself, and he filled him with what? Power. Filled him with power. Jesus was filled with power, and yet he was the most humble man, wasn't he? Real power comes from humility, where God lifts us up. You want to see genuine power. I don't know about you, but I'm not impressed with arrogant people. Are you? It's a fake power. It's phony. You know it's a fraud. You know they're trying to act powerful. But boy, when you see someone really humble, like a Moses and then a Jesus or a John the Baptist, you're looking at the real deal. God will fill. You know, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 11. Listen to the, the testimony of the end of Moses' life. You might want to jot these verses down if you haven't read them. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 11. But since then, I love the way this is written. It's so beautifully written. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all the land. Men that God raises up to give him glory. People will later say, there's never been another one like him. D.L. Moody, never been another one like him. Bach, not been another one like him. There's other good musicians, but not one like him. Men that God uses. David Livingston, not another one like him. Right? Billy Graham, who just turned 95 this past Thursday, there's not another one like him. There's guys that God will use, and there could be a next Billy Graham, but they won't be like him. God will make them uniquely special, different. Not everyone has been called to the unique, and I mean unique, ministry of Moses, wouldn't you say? But God wants from each and every one of us, and he has for each and every one of us, to walk a path that brings glory to him and points everyone else to the Savior. Jesus Christ. Your path will look different. Your calling will look different. Your gifts and talents look different. But the Lord has one. That brings us to the next point, the ministry. The ministry. We see here that uh, Aaron and his sons in verse 12 were brought to the door of the tabernacle. They were washed with water. The holy garments were put on them that they may minister in verse 13, that they would minister to me as priest. You and I, as we have been talking about for quite some time, have been made kings and priests to minister unto the Lord in our lives. No, we're, we're not wearing the priesthood garments. We're now wearing the priesthood garments of the righteousness of Christ. Amen? We've been saved by the blood of Jesus. We have been given garments that reflect His humility, His grace, His mercy, His salvation, His forgiveness. Now, Israel, Israel was called out of Egypt into ministry. You have to understand that everyone God saves is called into ministry. Really? I'm not a pastor. I, I, I'm not even an assistant pastor. Uh, I'm not a youth pastor. I'm not a missionary. Everyone's been called to ministry. You believe that? Everyone's been called to ministry. There wasn't one of the children of Israel that wasn't called into ministry. They were all called. Now, they might have different roles. There's only one Aaron high priest. And, and there would be a new high priest throughout the generations. But Everyone was called into ministry. Let's look at some of the things that God uh, outlines. First is the priesthood. Now, after Jesus' ascension, <clears throat> he would actually have named very specific leadership, and they started with who? The apostles. The apostles were the foundational leadership, just like God, God always has a leadership core. He had Moses, he had Aaron, he had Joshua, he had Hur. He had Caleb, he had these different leaders, but there was a leadership group. Now, were these men better than other men? No, they weren't. They just have a specific calling. Just like a wife is not less than the husband, she has a different ministry role than the husband. But both are equally important. Equally important. You can have a great general, but great generals need a great army. You can't have one without the other. They're both necessary. But the priesthood, God anointed for a special purpose. And after the ascension of Jesus with the apostles, he would also then call pastor shepherds, elders, deacons for the leadership ministry within the church. Not perfect men, far from it. 
None of them ever were, none of them ever will be. Faithful men. You see the difference? Not perfect, faithful. You and I, doesn't matter if you have leadership in the body of Christ, you're not called to perfection, you're called to be being made perfect by Jesus, and that final perfection will be when you go to heaven. But until that time, you are called to be faithful. Well done, good and perfect servant? No, good and faithful servant. So the priesthood was set up that the priesthood would be the one to do what? Two things primarily. One, to worship the Lord and point people to the glory of God and teach them and train them and continually remind them in the things of God. Make sense? So we, le- we just had a worship time, didn't we? We were praising the Lord. We remember, we constantly point the body of Christ, back to the worship of God, but we teach the instructions of God. The priesthood would still preach the law of Moses, still teach the law of Moses, so much so that Moses said, here's how I want you to teach it. You write it on the frontlets of your kid's eyes. He didn't mean literally, by the way. They were all getting out markers and writing all, all over the kids' faces. And on their hands, I'm going to write on your hands and stuff like that. But it was, it was to say that it would be so prominent that the teaching ministry has to start with the priesthood, but it should filter down all the way through the people. Well, who are the people? The people are families and individuals. They were, the, they were in the time of Israel. They are the, today. You guys are the congregation just like they were the tribes. And what are the tribes made up? Families and individuals. Mostly families because they didn't have a lot of single people back then. Right? And if they were, it was due to death, you know, where entire families died. That would happen sometime. You know, just heard from Box Life. Both his parents died. Death was very common before the age of medicine. People would die, and a lot of times they would be left as a single individual, as a widow, as a widower, or something like that, uh, of that nature. But the congregation was always, the people were the families and individuals. And remember that true godly leaders are simply to be the lead servants. The lead servants. Moses was the leader because he was the most humble. You understand that? God doesn't promote the least humble person. The world does. The world will take the least humble person and make them the head football coach. Or the head business person. Or the head of this political organization or whatever. But God does it the opposite. We're all to be servant-hearted. And God would take a group of families, individuals, and they would all have that servant's heart. It should be in the leadership, but it also should be in the people. Not about titles, but about accountability and responsibility. Each individual having a certain set of responsibilities. Right? Me and my wife have a title, but we don't, in our house, it's not about titles even though we have one, mom and dad are our titles. But that's about responsibility and accountability and leading correctly and serving and showing servant leadership. The rabbis, um, the people had a lot of responsibilities that the leaders wouldn't have. We talked about this uh, you know, back when we were in a good 10 or 12 chapters back. The rabbis established that God's command for the priestly garments to be for honor and beauty teach us that every garment had to be new and dignified, the garments the priesthood wore. If the garments were soiled, stained, ripped, the priest could not conduct the service while wearing them. If they did, their service would be invalid. If there was any stain on the garment, any at all, the service was invalid, had to start all over again. Another aspect of honor and beauty means that the uniform had to fit perfectly. It was forbidden for the pants, for example, to be too long or too short. The garments were made to order for each priest tailored to fit that priest's exact measurements. You notice what God was doing here. There's something hand-picked for every person, but it had to be clean, had to be the right thing, had to be done in purity. It also tells us something about the tremendous work that all the people had to do for the ministry to go forward. This tells us something, a tremendous workforce needed to turn out these garments in such quantity that every priest in Israel could be supplied with his very own garment. As we would learn with regard to the incense offering, there were so many priests available for the duty in the holy temple, the temple would later come after the tabernacle, 
that no priest ever offered the daily incense service more than once in his lifetime. It was offered twice daily for hundreds of years, and yet each one had his very own garment. What does that tell us? That everyone had to be part of the ministry. Your animals fed the priesthood. These things became the linen garments. These ladies sewed them. These men carried the bales. Everyone was part of the supply chain, if you will, of the ministry. And God was calling all the children of Israel. And it started there with the tabernacle. Everyone had to bring their time, their talent, and their treasure. And God says, this is the way it will always be. Not a one-time deal. All of you are all in. From Moses through the people, the whole nation was alive to bless and serve the Lord. Everything else would be secondary. So opposite of today. Many people today, they fit a little church into their life. God was saying that the children of Israel, ministry to me will be your life. Everything else will be, you'll have to make a living so you can serve me. You'll have to put food on the table so you can serve me. You don't put food on the table so you can check the box and just give me a few minutes. Your life is about the ministry. Not just, not just for pastors, but all of us. That when you think, man, I want to have my neighbors over, you're thinking not just to laugh and have a good time, although you want to, but also how can I make inroads to bring them to Christ? Right? everything. How can, I, how can I be a light and a witness at work? Not because I'm there to make more money than everybody else. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of a raise or a promotion. Those are good things. Praise the Lord for them. But those things should be like Joseph. It points people to say, no, I have been blessed because I always look to the Lord or Daniel. Our life should be ministry. The whole church is a group. The whole church is a group of families, individuals, that have been brought together by the Lord with a singleness of purpose, unity of heart, unity of mind, to serve and obey the Lord. But the effectiveness, the effectiveness of a corporate anything. What is a corporate? Corporate is an entity made up of groups and individuals, right? Whether it be a business, whether it be a sports team, whether it be a club, whether it be, in this case, much more important, the body of Christ. The effectiveness of corporate ministry is based on the surrender and obedience of the families and individuals in that corporate entity. What did Joshua say? Joshua said, as for me and my house, he couldn't pick every, for everybody else. All he could say, dad's all you can say, moms if you're a single mom, single person if you're a single person, all you can say is as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can't make the statement, as for me and my church, we will serve the Lord. You want that to be true. You pray that that's true, but you can't make that. You can only, Moses could only for himself choose to be fully surrendered to God and God transformed him into the most humble man on the face of the planet. Joshua modeled his life after Moses. Because he saw that Moses was so anointed, he's like, I want that. And Moses says, the only way you'll get it is on your face before the Lord. And Joshua says, well, for me and my house, we're following the same path. But when other families, you take four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, twenty families that all say, as for me and my house, and they truly have surrendered, we'll serve the Lord. Wow. You start to advance the work of God. Amen. Not that God needs, he can do it with one person. Look what he did with the Apostle Paul. Gracious. One man rocked the Mediterranean, didn't he? But wherever he went, new families rose up to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That corporate ministry grew. Because God, what God is doing through the body of Christ is he's raising up a living tabernacle in a dry, dusty, vastly growing atheistic world. Amen? That's what he's doing. Last is the meeting place, which I just alluded to there with the the spiritual representation that we are today as the tabernacle 
of God, the meeting place. What was the meeting place for? Why did God build, why did God have them build a tabernacle? And, and of course, God could have just spoke the tabernacle into existence, poof, there it was. Everything's there, folks. You wake up one morning, and what's in the middle of the camp? It's red and blue, and there's smoke coming off the top of it, and uh, what, what is that thing? It's got embroidery, but God didn't do that. He said, everyone is going to be involved. I'm going to empower you to be part of raising this up. He could have just spoken into existence. He didn't. Just like he could still speak into existence, everyone's ears hear the gospel, instead he sends us, right? We must go. But this meeting place, what was it for? Well, we know that it tells us in the text that the glory of the Lord filled it. It would reflect the presence and the glory of God. That's what it would reflect. When you and I gather together to worship, it is for one purpose, and that is to reflect the glory of God. Not our glory. We all have to be careful not to want to reflect our glory. Whether, whether you do worship, whether you do some other kind of ministry, everything should always, every time, point to the glory of God. It would be impossible to mistake the glory of God with the tabernacle because God's glory was above it, wasn't it? could be replicated. You couldn't make the cloud or the fire. This would be of the Lord. It would be a beacon. It would be a visual representation of the Lord to the people. People would look at it, and, and maybe later uh, when foreigners would travel through, Bedouin tribes would come uh, through, and Bedouin tribes would see, what is this thing you all built out here? Here's the amazing thing they'd be able to say, and this is when people ask you about the church. I I love when I get questions. I love to ask people questions to see what they know or see where they think, but people might would ask, what is that y'all built, and why did you build it this way? We didn't build it. We didn't design it. God built it, and God designed it. And that's what we have to tell people about. Why do y'all meet? What's so important about, can't I just worship the God in the woods on Sunday? Right? Can't I just go, uh, can't, I love when I'm in my backswing and it's so beautiful and I thank God for it, right? When I'm reeling in that fish that he made, can't I just do that? Now the children of Israel might have asked Moses a lot of the same questions. Do we have to meet here every Sabbath? Do we really have to do this? And Moses said, only if you want God's blessing. If you don't want his blessing, do whatever you want. But it's for me and my house, and soon to be Joshua's, we're going to do it the way God said. He said, if we continue to meet together and observe his glory, we won't forget his glory. If we don't forget his glory, he'll magnify his glory. If he magnifies his glory, he'll use us to magnify his ministry. We have to remember, when they would look at that tabernacle and they would see the colors of the scarlet and the blue, and they remember the, the different manifestations of God's glory, prophet, priest, the, the, the redeemer, all, these different, all of these different roles. When they would look at the brazen altar, and when they'd look at the brazen altar, they would constantly remember their own sin. They would understand Moses was going in, or he would uh, put, in the, he put in the mercy seat, and Aaron would go in on the date of atonement, and they would understand, yes, I need mercy. How about you? I need atonement. And for us, as we partake as the body of Christ in things like the Lord's Supper, as we partake this morning in His Word, it's a reminder to us of the grace we've been given, of the forgiveness we need, of the Lamb. We will sing someday the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. But we're reminded today, and I've got to tell you, I've been saved since 19... 95, I need to be reminded every day of God's grace. And I'm really thankful that God instituted this thing called the church and says to gather together, to not forsake the assembly of yourselves as this is the manner of some, but even a lot less until I come back. Is that what it says? No. But even more, 
This is the opposite of what's taking place in the lukewarm church. Instead of gathering together more, they're gathering less, which is a direct disobedience to the command. The children of Israel, they could not avoid the tabernacle. It was in the center of the camps. The tribes were actually stationed all around it, east, west, north, and south. There was no escaping that God wanted to commune with them, and he wants to commune with us, but not just individually, but corporately. Why? Because they would all be of the same mind, heart, and they would go out with the same vision of the Lord. God wants us on the same page. The work was finished, it tells us here. Moses finished the work in verse 33. It was exact and complete obedience, wasn't it? You know, everything God asks us to do, we need to finish those tasks. We can't delay them. We do delay them. Uh, am I the only one guilty of delaying tasks that God has given you? Am I the only one that is back at the throne saying, all right, Lord, this time, this time, this time, I mean, I mean it this time. Am I the only one that's ever done that? I mean, I really mean it, but I need your help to really mean it. But you know what? God, God gives us grace for those things, but he also will not stick around. He will not let it go on forever. God has a finish date, and it was one year to the time they left. God has a finish date for everything he gives you and me. And he knows the timeline, and if you don't know the timeline, he will make sure you understand the timeline. At some point, he'll do a little chastening till you get with the timeline. I don't even know God's timeline on certain things, but I know what happens to be in the timeline, and that's obedience. And then later, I actually, I actually see, wow, that was in the time and providence of God. But it has to be in his obedience. And the, one of the things that the Lord calls us to do, again, in the meeting place of the body of Christ, we are to gather like we're doing here because God will accomplish something with it. He'll encourage each other. He'll strengthen one another, right? Lift each other's needs up. All of these things uh, they would do when they would encourage each other, when they didn't want to work another day in the 105-degree temperature, smelting the gold. They had to do it anyway to press on. We need each other to finish and complete the work. Everything was put in exactly the way the Lord prescribed. The Holy of Holies, the testimony, the mercy seat, the menorah was lit, the light was shining forth. Everything was done exactly the way, exactly the way God says. I've got to tell you, we cannot alter the way God says to do it or he will not fill this place with his glory. You agree with that? Well, we'll just do it man's way. I read an article recently, a church that um, has begun serving craft beer and a rollicking service because numbers were dwindling in the church. Okay, let's just get filled with the spirits instead of filled with the spirit. Man's ways produce man's type of fruit. God says, don't, if you, I don't care if your work, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, no one's appreciating your work. Keep writing them. Well, what if nothing comes of it? Trust me, in 300 years, everyone will know about it. But what about in my lifetime? That's not for you. Noah, Keep preaching, but not a single person's coming, Lord. Our church is still our family. What should I alter? How about I not build an, how about I not build an ark? How about I build an airplane? Because that'll fly high above the water, Lord. I'll build an airplane. God says, no, no, you don't build an airplane, build an ark. Okay. Do you see the difference in exact obedience and say, I get you, Lord, I know you want to get people or do this, so let's just modify the commandments a little bit, and we'll do it our way. Yep. They sing the Frank Sinatra song, right? I did it my way. And that won't work, will it? When they did it God's way, notice that God's so filled after they put everything exactly the way God said it, he so filled the place that no one could enter, not even Moses. Oh boy, that is a safeguard, isn't it? That no one's celebrity personality can take over, not even Moses's. Isn't that awesome? God so filled the place that no man could take credit. 
God actually pushed Moses and Aaron, you can't even come in right now until everyone knows that I alone fill this place. Remember when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter said, oh, this is good, Lord. Let us make a tabernacle for Elijah and one for Moses and one for you. Poof, Moses and Elijah are gone and God says, this is my son, hear him. No pastor, no leader should ever, ever take the glory of God. And it happens all the time. K.P. O'Hannon just said the other day, he said, the church right now, he grieves his heart, he said, the church is lacking godly leaders who have discernment and true fear of the Lord. And he is so right. Moses was never going to overstep the glory of God. He stayed away and said, God, do your work, and I'll just stay out of the way. And that's what needs to take place with the meeting place of God, that we get out of the way, we follow the Lord's commands to the letter, and we let God do the rest. In 1 Samuel 4.21, it said, Then she named the child Ichabod, because the glory has departed from Israel. What a sad commentary. The Ark of the Covenant was gone. There would come a day when the children of Israel, the glory of God was removed because they had replaced the obedience to their Lord to obedience to their own flesh. And when that happens in the meeting place of God, when that happens in the church of God, the glory that fills the place is removed. I don't know about you, but I do not want the glory of God removed. I want it to magnify. I, want, I think we can have more of the glory of God here. How about you? We can have more of an anointing of the Spirit, more of the power and presence of Jesus Christ, but it all comes through doing it exactly the way he says. In Exodus 29, back in the 29th chapter, verse 43, it says, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall, the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. It's the same with us, folks. When the Lord is here, he sanctifies us by his glory. If we do what we've been asked to do in obedience and in love and surrender and in humility and love covers a multitude of sins because we all will step on each other's toes and all these things, and we, for, and we gently forgive, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you, and God covers all of that with the blood, then he fills the place with his glory. Then he does the work we're praying. We've been praying for revival. It will come. I honestly, absolutely believe it will come if we stay faithful in prayer and purity in prayer. If, we've got, if we're living a licentious lifestyle and praying for revival, forget it. But if we are allowing God to cleanse and remove us and get us out of the way, he'll fill this place not only with his presence, but with new souls. Absolutely, 100%. Believe it. In First Chronicles 16, 23 and 24, it says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nation, his wonders among all the peoples. Did you hear the command that God's given us? This is what I want to close with. God has said, if we declare his glory and proclaim the good news of his salvation in all the world, that this is what we're called to do, to sing of his glory, to proclaim his glory, but to proclaim the good news of his salvation. You cannot proclaim God's glory without, without proclaiming the good news of salvation. They go hand in hand. Remember Moses, what, he, what was he? He was a deliverer, a deliverer. Jesus would be called deliverer. He shall save his people from their sins. Deliverers are good news because you're delivered from something. And you and I, when we proclaim the glory of God, it's proclaiming Him as deliverance. If you haven't invited anyone to My Hope America, you got to do it. I still got a bunch of cards back there. I ordered 250 more. Invite people. Well, what if they don't come? That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to invite. Same as Noah's. Same as John the Baptist. Same as Moses. You invite and you declare and you proclaim and you let God do the calling. Amen? The Holy Spirit is the one. When we talk about the Holy Spirit the next two weeks, to bring conviction, righteousness, and judgment to come. God will do that. Let me ask a closing question. I ask a closing question. And I'll read one verse that goes along with it. In John 15, 8, this is what Jesus said. This is the literal words of Jesus, the prophet greater than Moses. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. This is the ministry of your individual tabernacle, 
This is the ministry of the tabernacle, that we are raised for what? To bring glory to God and bearing much fruit. Jesus said, this glorifies the Father. And your life and mine, we have a clear witness that we've been set free, former slaves to the bondage of sin, just like the Israelites were in bondage to slavery. And that the Lord has raised us up to live every moment now for His glory. And in doing so, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will bear fruit. Is your life bearing fruit to the glory of God? Is my life bearing fruit to the glory of God? We have to ask the Lord that because God didn't build a tabernacle just to build one. He built it to fill it. Amen? He called you and saved you to fill you.